0: All right. I didn't mention earlier, my name is Pastor John. Uh, Jim is out of town this week, so I, uh, I'm going to be filling in today and speaking again. And I apologize if you're expecting, you know, someone a little uglier uh, to, to bring in the word today. Uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, um, but uh, we're going to continue our series today called Sketchy. And uh, we just started it last week, and we're going to take a look at uh, the live the lives of some unfinished women in the bible it's just some pretty sketchy ones the, the Bible is so honest it doesn 't just tell the stories of nice people because um, that 's not life we 're not really all just nice people are we you know we're, we, uh, we have uh, there's some things that are sketchy about us so turn to acts chapter five we 're going to take a look at a, at, a, at, a, at a couple today actually a husband and a wife and uh, you'll want to follow along so if you need a Bible read Raise your hand. We have ushers coming forward in the link. We have ushers coming forward here in the main. You will want to follow along because this story is just so interesting and intriguing um, today. Acts chapter 5, the fifth book in the New Testament, is where we're going to be turning. And once you get there, put your finger on verse 1, chapter 5, and we'll read it together in just a moment. So go ahead and find it. I don't know if you guys have ever had a bad day, but I have. It's kind of a silly question, right? We've all had bad days, Um, but you know what? Have you ever had a really bad day, like the kind where the washer breaks, um, where the car doesn't start, where ants are invading your house, where uh, Pastor Jim doesn't stop coming into your office and giving you things to do, where there's no sports on TV at home, so you're watching TLC, um, where you just discovered your child has lice, uh, where your in-laws are coming for a visit all in one day, that would be a bad day. Except for the part about your in-laws. I actually have wonderful in-laws. I really enjoy them. We spent uh, 4th of July together. They're great. And besides, they have the internet, and so they could watch this message online. So I'm going to say, I love my in-laws again. uh, They're they're wonderful people. I was just joking about that. But, uh, you know, we all have bad days. But not quite as bad as this couple that we're going to read about today. And the worst kind of bad days are the kind that you think are going to be a great day. You kind of wake up excited in the morning and you think, you know, there's some good stuff happening. Maybe you know something's going to happen today and it's going to be a great day. And those are the worst kind of days when they don't turn out the way we think and they are bad days instead like, that's the worst, and that's what happens to this couple today. So, let's, let's take a look at this. We're going to read this together. It started out really, they were really excited, but by the end of the day, they weren't too excited, and you'll see why here in a second. Acts chapter 5, stand up. Uh, let's read it together. We want to honor God's word, and, and I'm reading from the 2011 NIV. We've started using that here to preach, and uh, so if it sounds a little bit different, that might be why until you get a version or that particular version with you. Acts chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 to 11. Here we go, ready together, 1, 2, 3, read. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest, and he put it at the apostles' feet. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward. They wrapped up his body and they carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You may have a seat. Great fear seized the whole church, no doubt. Wow, that is some Scary stuff. I apologize if you're coming in today looking for sort of an exciting kind of feel good message because that's not what this is, as you already know from just reading this story. And you know what? This this story, if you know the book of Acts, remember, it's the history book of the New Testament church. It kind of talks about the first churches, how they were formed, how missionaries kind of went all all along and all around the known world at that time and started churches everywhere. And it's really an awesome history lesson in the early church. And, And it's one of my favorite books to read when I come across it in my reading plans. And this story stands out so much because it is like this just jarring slap in the face when you read it compared to everything else you're gonna be reading in the book of Acts. I mean, the church is exploding. People are coming to know Jesus. People are being healed. Um, Just more and more thousands of people are coming to Christ and the church is being started everywhere and it's exciting and it's awesome. We read in chapters two and three and four how people are sharing together. They're in unity and they're helping each other and they're caring for each other's needs and the church is this awesome, Awesome happening place that people want to be a part of. And, and then you read the story, and it just kind of just is like, wow. It just is so jarring compared to everything else that you're reading. But perhaps that's why it's included in the text because it was so key in laying some foundational principles for how the Church of Jesus was going to operate. It stands out as a clear warning to us and to the people who lived in the first century. So let's go back and try to unpack this chapter 5, the verse 11 verses. Uh, Verse 1 says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, also, the word also, gives us a clue that he was talking about something before that. They also sold a piece of property. Well, if we go back to the end of chapter 4, just a few verses up, you'll see that the the author Luke was talking about some others who had done that same thing. Look at verse 34. of of chapter four, it says, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and they brought the money from the sales and they put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. So chapter four ends describing these people who did this very generous thing. And then the author describes compares them or contrasts them against Ananias and Sapphira at the beginning of chapter 5. He says they also sold a piece of property, but they didn't give all the money like everyone else did in what was described earlier in the beginning of chapter 4. You see, they wanted to have the acclaim. They, Ananias and Sapphira wanted to have sort of the, the good name as being generous, as, as being very spiritual. They wanted that reputation that Barnabas and the others were getting. But they didn't want to make the genuine sacrifice, You see, they weren't content with just a single profit. They wanted a double profit. They wanted the spiritual prestige. They wanted that reputation that would come along with doing such a a generous thing. But they wanted to keep actually some of the money for themselves. They wanted both. They couldn't just have one or the other. They, They actually wanted both things. And the author, I notice, also describes um, pretty clearly that this was something they planned to do together, right? It says in verse 5, or I'm sorry, in chapter 1, I'm way off. Chapter 5, verse 1, a man named Ananias, it says together with his wife, Sapphira. And then in verse two, it says, and with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. In other words, this was a plan that they had hashed out together. They were both doing it. It was something they talked about. It was something they had planned. They were going to do this. They planned to like lie to the church, to lie to God. This was what their plan was. And this is what they described and kind of uh, conspired to do together. Now, the Holy Spirit, though, gives insight to Peter about what they're going to do. Because when when Ananias walks in in verse 3, Peter sort of surprises him. Now, you've got to remember that Ananias is walking in there. He's got this big sum of money, you know, and and maybe he even had like a special gold bag, you know, that had like a dollar sign on it he's kind of walking in there with. You know, he's kind of saying, look at this. Look what I'm bringing in. And he's coming in to give this to Peter, and he is expecting to like get a plaque, you know, that's going to, uh, you know, kind of help everyone remember what he and his wife have done. They're going to name, you know, this new ministry, the Ananias and Sapphira, you know, whatever. He, he was pretty excited about himself. He thought Peter would be too. He wanted this spiritual um, acclaim, this prestige that, uh, you know, Barnabas and these others had been given. That had, they were mentioned. They thought maybe they'll be mentioned at the next service. We want to thank Ananias and Sapphira for their generous gift that they gave You know, and they they did this and that's sort of what Ananias was expecting. And so that had to make Peter's words all the more shocking because Peter doesn't give him any kind of credit. Peter says to him, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? How is it that Satan has so filled your heart? Not the words Ananias was expecting. Jaw drops, what? Peter asks in verse four, didn't it belong to you, the land, before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? So what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. You know, Acts 4.34, when it describes these people that had done this, it doesn't set it up as being something that was normal. Did you notice what it said? When you're reading the scripture, look for the clues, look for the details, okay? Look at verse 34. It says there were no needy persons among them. And then it says, for from time to time, those who owned land sold them and gave the money. It wasn't what was expected. It wasn't like that's what Peter was saying everybody had to do. Don't get confused that here in the New Testament church that everybody just gave all their money and they all sort of lived equally and they all had the same amount of money. No, they had different jobs, they had different incomes. It wasn't this sort of communistic or socialistic society that was being developed. That's not what it was. That wasn't what Peter was asking or the other leaders were saying, you have to give us all your money and then we'll distribute it out. No, it says from time to time, people would do that. If God led them to sell this extra house or land that they had, and they did, and they brought it to the church so they could help other people, that was awesome. That was what they were led to do, but it wasn't what was normal or was expected of them. And so the sin of Ananias and Sapphira wasn't necessarily greediness. They were doing a great thing. They had sold this land, and they were giving most of the money. And the reason I say they gave most of the money was because if they had only given a small part of it, it would have been obvious that they were lying, right? It's like if your friend would say to you, I want to help you out. I just sold my car. I'm going to give you everything. Here's $5. You'd kind of say, what? Must not have been a very good car, right? Was it your Matchbox car? You know, it doesn't make sense. And so to make their story plausible, they had to probably give most of the money. Because, I mean, the apostles, they knew what property sold for. And that to me even makes it sadder. For this little bit of money that they held back, that's what they lost their lives for. It, It probably was a real generous gift. So the problem was in their motives. The problem was in their lying to God, Their their motives that they had, and we're going to come back to that later. The problem was in their integrity. That was the problem. Well, Peter says, you have not lied to men, but to God. And I want to just pause for a second from uh, the story here of Ananias and Sapphira to talk for one second about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit because these verses here are very crucial to our understanding of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5, 3, and 4 are ones that you'll kind of want to put into your memory bank to remember, because we learned some really important things about the Holy Spirit here, who's a member of the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That makes us very unique, very different from other religions, other faiths that are out there that would say there is, yes, one God, but it's just the Father, and maybe they have another name for him, but they believe in one God, but we believe in a Trinity. That's what the Bible teaches. This is so critical for you to understand. And here we we learn a couple of things about the Trinity, about the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity. First of all, we learn that he is a person. He's not some force. Sometimes we think about the Holy Spirit as kind of this mystical sort of fate or this force that is out there, kind of like Star Wars, you know, that doesn't have a personality, you know, just sort of things happen and we don't quite get it. No, the Bible describes the Holy Spirit as a person. He was lied to. You can't lie to something that's not personable or a person, So the Holy Spirit has personality. It's very critical to our understanding of the Holy Spirit. Just like God the Father and God the Son, the Holy Spirit is a person as well. And then this is one of the best scriptures here to prove the deity. Or what I mean by that is the fact that the Holy Spirit is God, right? This this is a very clear passage. If you're ever talking with someone that wants to argue on that with you, say, no, the Holy Spirit, you know, it's just God the Father. He's the main one. The other ones aren't as important. The Holy Spirit's not as important. No, listen, right here, very clearly, the Holy Spirit is God. Do you see? Look at verse 3. Peter says, You have lied to the what? Holy Spirit, right? And then in verse 4, he says the very same statement, but he changes and he says, You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. So these verses very directly tell us that the Holy Spirit is God. He is deity with the same attributes, um, the same equal footing as the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is God. And so I wanted to pause to talk about that for a second. So these are great verses to know if you ever questioned about the Holy Spirit or the Trinity or the deity of the Holy Spirit. But in verse five, Ananias loses his life. It says, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. He didn't even have time to explain his motives. He didn't have time to sort of say, wait a second. There was no time. He was gone, just like that. It was over. And and apparently there's these young men there at the church who happened to be serving at the time, and they get the job of wrapping up Ananias and going and burying him. Now, we ask you guys to do lots of things. We have all kinds of serving teams here at Grace, from worship to tech ministries to children's ministry, but we have never asked for a burial team. Okay, so you can just say, man, we have awesome pastors, all right? They don't ask me to serve on the burial team. Here are these young guys. They walk in. I don't know what they were doing there. They thought they were going to do childcare, But instead, it's like, no, you see this body over here? I want you to wrap it up and go bury it, right? Are you sure, Peter? Is that a good idea? Is this legal? You know what? It, 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 was, it was normal, okay? If Pastor Jim would ask me to do that, I'd be like, is this legal? You know, I ask myself that sometimes um, with things we do. And uh, so, but, uh, but you know what? Peter asks them to do it. That's their job. That's their, they're on the burial serving team. And they're like, sure, we'll go do it. And so they, they, they take them out. I'm sure they didn't say it like that, but they go out and they, they bury them. And that's what, that's what they do. Now, you know, that was normal in a, you got to remember, it's a hot, Palestine climate. It was very normal to bury bodies the same day the person passed away because it was just so hot and there was no way to refrigerate them or anything like that, you know, hadn't been invented yet. And so that's what they would do. That was very normal. Well, verse 7 tells us it's only three hours later that here comes Sapphira, the wife. And she hadn't heard what had happened to her husband, which is a little odd because in verse 5 it says that kind of everyone who heard became sort of fearful when they heard what had happened. But somehow she's not, maybe she wasn't very involved in the community of the church. Maybe they were just sort of attenders and they they weren't really plugged in, so news didn't spread to them. They didn't get the information. I don't know if that's the case. Or maybe God sort of shielded them from that information so that, shielded her, I'm sorry, from that information so that she would have her own chance to sort of stand for herself or whatever. And so she, she, for whatever reason, doesn't find out. And she comes then to the church. Maybe she's expecting to, you know, get, uh, hey, we heard about your gift this morning. That was awesome. Man, thanks so much. I don't know if she's expecting that. Or or maybe she's looking for her husband. We don't really know. But she comes three hours later, and uh, she hadn't heard. And so uh, Peter gives her a second chance. He says, is this really the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody who you know is lying to you? Maybe one of your children or maybe some other circumstance. I shouldn't pick on kids. I just happen to be a parent. And so I have some instances like that I can think of. Uh, Have you ever talked to somebody you know they're lying to and you're trying to give them a second chance to sort of tell the truth, to kind of come clean? I can actually think of an instance like that with one of my uh, boys. Um, Not too long ago, a couple summers ago, my kids were staying with my parents. And we were um, with the fifth graders in Philadelphia, and, and my kids were staying with uh, my parents there in Pennsylvania while we were there. And, and they had been fishing and hanging out and doing lots of cool stuff. And they—this uh, is going to sound a little crass— but my, my dad said, you know, taught them that they could go to the bathroom outside. Okay, they didn't have to use plumbing. Okay, they could, you know, they're outside, they're in the woods, they could do it right here. And so this happens because, and the reason I, the way I find out, and Tara and I find out is because the next week we're home and we're in our backyard. We live on Third Street in Goshen at the time and we're staying there and all of a sudden we're playing, I don't know, catch or something. Ethan says, hang on, I gotta go to the bathroom. Runs over to the bush and goes to the bathroom. Like, dude, like right here's the house. Like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh no, grandma says it's Okay. And I'm like, well, I, I think he probably meant it's okay, like, you know, if there's no other place, you know, if it's in a private place. This isn't a private place. You can't do that. Well, our boys just like loved this idea of just, you know, again, forgive me for being crass, peeing outside. They just thought it was awesome. And so they would do this. And we would just say, guys, seriously, you're just not allowed to do that. Okay, they were younger at the time than they are now. And, and uh, well, anyway, so after one of these conversations that we have, uh, we're inside the house. And this is the craziest thing. We're inside the house. And I see my son run outside the house, (laughs) and we we had working plumbing at the time. And I see him a minute later come back inside the house, and I'm like, I know what you just did. So I walk outside and I go around to the side of the house where I'd seen him, and there on our siding, it's dripping. (laughs) And I I come back in, I'm like, I'm like, "Um, do you remember that talk we? recently had. In fact, we've had several of them uh, about, uh, you know, looking f- you know, for a private place to go to the bathroom when you're outside, or if you happen to be inside, just use the bathroom. <laughs> do you remember that? Yeah, Dad, sure. Um, can you come outside with me for a second? We walk around the house. Do you know what this is right here? Can you explain this to me? I saw you come back inside, and I th- do you know what happened right here? You know, and um, he says, um, just keeps looking down at the ground. Just keeps saying, um, well, you know, why don't you think and try to remember what happened while you go get the hose and spray off the house, okay? And so sometimes you're trying to give your kids a chance to tell the truth. You know, you have the oddest conversations as a parent, don't you? It's like, I never thought I would be talking about this, but we are. And, and so you, you have to have these conversations. And, and I, of course, my parents had them with me too, so I shouldn't be surprised. But, you know— um, Peter isn't talking to his child here though. He's talking to someone in the church and he's trying to give her an opportunity to do the right thing. He says, is this really the price that you and Ananias paid for this, for this land? And she says, yes, that is the price. She and her husband had made a plan. They had made a pact and she was sticking to it. She didn't know what had happened to to him. and She wasn't going to go away from the plan. And maybe it seemed harsh to you the way it did to me the first time I kind of read this story again, you know, this week and sort of kind of trying to read it for the first time, trying to kind of remember the first way I felt when I had first read it. And and maybe it seemed really harsh to you that Ananias didn't have any kind of chance to explain or defend himself. But, But when his wife was given the chance to do the right thing, she doesn't take it. And so it's pretty safe to assume her husband wouldn't have either. You know, they had determined that in their heart, this was what they were going to do. Their hearts were so hard towards the Holy Spirit, towards his promptings, that this was what they were going to do. And they were going to go forward with it. And her life is taken as well. And you know what's really tragic? Peter says to her, how could you conspire him in verse 9 to test the spirit of the Lord? The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. In verse 10, at that moment, she fell down and died. And that is so tragic because at the very same moment that her ears hear, that her husband has just passed away, she loses her life in the same instant. At that moment, Great fear," it says in verse 11, seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You know, it's interesting that God uses this incident in the life of the church. I'm sure there are lots of stories that happen from day to day, but this one gets put into the canon. Here in the book of Acts, it gets recorded for us, because it was so foundational. Because it was so important, because this wasn't a group of individuals anymore. This verse right here is the first time the word church is used, verse 11, in the book of Acts. It no longer was a group of individuals who were sort of following Christ. They were now a group. They were now a committed family, a body together. And what happened to one person in that family or in that body affected everybody else. The same way is true for us at our church. What I the choices that I make, they affect you. The choices that you make, they affect me. We are connected. We are a family, we are a body. The Church of Jesus Christ is that way. And this story was so critical and so crucial to establishing these foundational principles of the church. But it wasn't just foundational for that church in Jerusalem. It still applies the principles here to us today, 2,000 years later. And as I read this story, I was reminded about some principles about God. And that's what I want to unpack for us today. Some key thoughts that we learn about the character of God from this passage. Three is what we're going to talk about today. Three different ones. Here's the first. The character of God demands, demands holy fear from every person if you don't read the story and have a little twinge of fear sort of go up your spine, then you're not reading the same story I am. You've read it too many times or something. People died because they sinned. And that makes me a little afraid. I hope it does you. Maybe there were some that were in this early church who had seen Jesus because these people were contemporaries. They, this was just after he gets taken back to heaven. They had seen his life. And maybe they had seen his incredible compassion. They had seen his incredible grace, the sacrifice that he made on the cross. They saw that with their eyes. And perhaps they believed in some way that they didn't, they saw that, but they didn't see the justice Or a fear of God or Jesus. You know, the name Ananias literally means God is gracious. And perhaps Ananias and Sapphira were counting on God's grace. And they thought that's all there was to him. Perhaps there were those who had been joining up the church, or the way as it was called back then, because they had seen Christ's compassion. And maybe they were tricked into thinking somehow that they were soft on sin. You know, they, they, compared to the religious leaders that they were used to growing up around the synagogue, those Pharisees who we know from the New Testament were so uh, graceless and so full of judgment and just seemed sort of angry, perhaps they thought that Jesus was uh, very easy compared to them when they saw his love and his grace and we must be careful to not believe the same thing that following Christ is just about him solving our problems for some of us, our relationship with God centers around him helping us he 's just like a sort of some self help self-help guru. Because when you look at uh, the Christian bookstores, there's tons of books about how Christ wants to give you this and fill you with this and make you this. And that is what we want to hear about him. But there's so much more to God than just this gracious, loving character. He is much more complex than that. He is much more diverse than that. And we are to fear him. He doesn't just exist to help us solve our relationship troubles, to help us lose weight, to help us get rich. That is not the sum of God for us. He does not exist to help us and to make our lives better. No, God is compassionate. He is loving. He does care about those things in our lives, but he is also just and righteous And he can't just wink at sin because our God is also holy. The church often falls into the trap of going with whatever is popular in the world. And if something is popular, we sort of love to emphasize that about God. And that's great because we can draw people in. But then if something in the church is sort of unpopular, something that the church teaches or the the Bible teaches is unpopular, we sort of get embarrassed of it. We don't want to talk about it. It's sort of like, let's not bring that up. Because that's not very popular out in society or in culture. And the fear of the Lord is one of those doctrines that just doesn't sound very nice to people out there. People think, what do you mean we're supposed to fear God? I thought he was was just full of love. I thought he was just full of compassion for us. I mean, hell's not a real place. God doesn't really send judgment on earth. Come on, he, he loves And that's the message that people want to hear about God. And so we're sort of become embarrassed to talk about the fear of the Lord. But the Bible is so clear that we are to fear God. You know, we know that for several reasons. One, everyone who who met God was afraid. When you read the Bible, they were scared. They didn't run up and give them a high five. They got on their faces. They fell down. They were scared. They were going to die. They were afraid. The fear of the Lord is is a basic doctrine of Scripture taught throughout. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. It's not just some, you know, God coming to judge the world, God, you know, having a place called hell as a real place. That's not just hocus pocus, it's not just science fiction. The Bible teaches as if it's real, as if that's literal. And that makes me a little scared. Here's where we need to start. Because the Bible teaches that God is very complex. Sometimes we just see one side of God. We just see his love for us and his grace, and that is true. But on the back side, if we picture God as a cube, there there is also the justice of God, the the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the wrath-filled anger of God towards sin. He is so much more complex than what we just want to see, the one side of him. He is so much more than one-dimensional. We saw that in the story of Lot's wife last week, where God was so patient with Lot and his family. I mean, he went out of his way to be patient towards them. But when time came to it, he was also filled with justice and righteous anger, and there was judgment. God is all of that. God is extremely patient. God is extremely loving. God is extremely gracious. But you know what? God is also extremely just and extremely holy and extremely righteous. He is all those things. In fact, Psalm 111.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That kind of goes against us because we would much prefer a God that we can manage, not one that we're supposed to be a little fearful of a God that that we can sort of control, that we have the right to question. That sounds appealing to us. We don't question God. We we would prefer a God that we can manage, that that we can negotiate with. But the thing about a negotiation is is it's sort of a give and take. And see, we don't have anything to offer God. There there is no negotiation. What do we offer God? He, He doesn't need me. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need us. That's what makes him God. He exists fully, wholly by himself, completely happy with himself. And and that would be very egotistical if that was any one of us, but he is also holy, perfect, loving, and compassionate, and others focused, and somehow he is all that. But but he doesn't need me. I have nothing to negotiate. What do I offer him? Nothing. See, we can't manage God. We can't get him to do our bidding. We can't negotiate with a God that does not need anything. And I know, you know, that doesn't sound exciting. That's old school. You know, let's talk about these other areas of God. We won't talk about the fear of God. But think about it for a second. Who wants a God that is their buddy? You want a God that's your buddy when you're facing cancer? Who has no power over anything? When your life is falling apart, you want a God you can call up and just kind of hang out with and you feel so comfortable around him that you just, you know, give him a high five and you tell jokes with him. You want a God like that? No. We want a God who is powerful. We want a God who will do what is right, who will do what is perfect. See, when people in the Bible came into the presence of God, I said already, they fell on their faces in fear. Some said, I'm a dead man because I am before God. Even Jesus with his own best friends, his disciples, when you read the New Testament, there were times where they would sort of pull away from him and say, who is this guy? He talks to the wind and it obeys him? It was Peter who said, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. I can't be around you. Yes, they knew that Jesus loved them, but they were a little scared sometimes to be around him. They would say things like, you ask him. You ask him what he meant. I'm not gonna. They were fearful. They were a little scared. We've sort of tamed God too much. We've put him in this box that we can be comfortable with. That somehow he wants to be my my best friend and my pal. But God is to be feared. There's something a little scary about being in the presence of God. And you know what? If we were in the presence of God for five seconds like the people in the Bible were, we would have the same reaction. We would also be a little scared for our lives. We wouldn't be tempted to sort of have this view of God that we could control or that we could negotiate with or that we could somehow tell him what we want with our lives to do. You see, it's more than just respect. We want to say, ah, the fear of God, that means we're supposed to show him respect. These guys were terrified. When you read the scriptures... It was more than just showing God respect. We need to muster up some respect for God. No, if I'm in the presence of God, there is no choice. I'm fearful. And when I come to the presence of God, I don't have to make myself fear him. Now, the Bible says that one day, every knee will bow down. Every tongue will confess, Jesus you are Lord. When we get to heaven, the picture isn't us running up and jumping and giving a high five and saying, "Man, that was awesome! Thanks for having- man, this looks great. Yeah, I'm glad you put that in." Oh, there's a pool. Awesome. That looks awesome. The picture is when we get to heaven, we fall down on our faces and say, "We are not worthy." That's what we were just singing here in the main. We're not worthy. Holy, holy, holy is God. It's not, hey, can I stand on the stage with you, Jesus, when they sing? How ridiculous to be that comfortable around God. Yes, he loves us, but there should be a little bit of fear. I remember when I turned my life over to Jesus. Yes, I wanted him to be my savior. Yes, I wanted him to walk with me through life. But honestly, I was also scared. I repented of my sin because I knew if I did not, judgment was coming for me. If you worship a God, if your view of God doesn't involve some sort of fear, then you have not really encountered the God of the Bible. You are worshiping something, some other God, but it is not the God of these scriptures. Because the people in these scriptures feared God. They were a little scared around his holiness. The character of God demands holy fear from every person. Now, we we have faith that he will always do what is right. And that is what gives us comfort. He's not just an angry God. He's not just out there kind of lashing out his wrath and just bam, getting them and bam, getting them. He just can't wait to get us. That's not the picture of God. No, he's he's 100% under control. He is 100% loving and forgiving and gracious and all those things. He's all of that. And I don't know how it all melds together. I don't know if we'll understand that. This side of heaven is I don't even know if we'll understand that totally when we get there. All I know is that I'm so thankful for his grace And I'm also a little fearful of his wrath. And when I, but here's also what I know. I said, if we would just spend five seconds in the presence of God, we would fear him. But you know what? If we spent five seconds in the presence of God, we would also know this. There is nothing else that we should fear. So that's what gives us comfort. Because when I live in the fear of God, I'm not afraid of anything else. Once I know that he is with me, once I'm okay with him, I don't need to be fearful of loneliness because he's with me. I don't need to fear death because he gives me eternal life. I don't need to fear other people because I fear him. I'm living to please him. And so I don't live to please other people. And it's okay if they don't like me because I'm living to please him. I'm fearful of him. Ananias and Sapphira, who did they want to please? Other people. They wanted to have this good reputation, They wanted people to look at them and say, man, they're good people. They had no fear of God. We got to flip that around. We got to be fearful of God. And when we are, we have no reason to fear others. His love and his compassion and his forgiveness is available to all. Now, maybe you would think that a fear of God would push people away. They'd become scary and say, I'm not in if that's how God is. But actually the opposite happens when you read Acts 5 and you keep reading on, look at verse 14. It says, Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Another translation says, More than ever before, people ran to the church. People ran towards God. See, a fear, a healthy fear of God, I'm not talking about one where I'm scared of God. No, I know that he loves me, but I also have this kind of fear because he is still God. That's what I'm talking about. And when that was established, when there was a healthy fear of God, people ran to that. See, people want to know the truth. Man, we hear that all the time here at Grace. People say, we need the truth. We want to hear the truth. We want to hear the scriptures taught the way that they're supposed to. We don't just want these feel-good messages week after week. We just make me feel better about myself. That's not what people want. People want truth. And people ran towards God when their fear was established. I'm so glad God is gracious, but you know what? I'm also so glad that He is fierce because I know He's on my side and I know that He is with me. And I'm so glad that He is powerful. But i got to recognize that I must... Watch my attitude towards God, because the character of God demands holy fear. Here's the second thing. The character of God not only demands holy fear from every person, the character of God demands integrity in every believer. Jesus was clear on his feelings towards spiritual hypocrisy. I'm going to turn back just a few books to Matthew chapter 6. Where Jesus talks about people like Ananias and Sapphira. People who did good things to be recognized and to be noticed. People like us who are tempted to live that way. Myself included. You included. People that I know here at Grace like this. Listen, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 1. In fact, this whole chapter of Matthew 6, Jesus preaches on this very topic. But we'll summarize it with the first verse. He says, be careful. That's a warning. Be warned. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And Jesus just goes on to describe the way you pray, the way you give, the way you serve. You don't do that in a way that just is to make yourself look good. You have no reward in heaven if that's how you're living. Ananias and Zephyr wanted the appearance of godliness, but their actions showed that their public and their private lives did not match up. Didn't match up. See, they were concerned more about how they looked than how they lived. They were concerned more about how they looked than how they lived. And Don't get confused here that that you're not supposed to ever, that people shouldn't notice that you're making a difference, that your life is different. Just remember in in the chapter ahead in, in Acts 4, it named Barnabas and these other people who had done this very same thing of giving their gifts People will notice when, I, when my life is different, when God you, you know, is using me and, and I'm making changes in my life, they'll notice that. It's nothing, but my heart needs to match it. That's the problem. My heart needs to be sincere. So I'm not putting on this kind of false exterior that I'm doing all this, but I really am living like this when no one's watching me. Your heart has to match the way you try to portray yourself because your heart is what God looks at. That was the problem with Ananias and Sapphira. It wasn't their action. It was a great thing they were doing, but their heart didn't match. They were concerned more about how they looked and how they lived. You see, true service is spirit-driven. There's no kind of, without any thought for what kind of reward there is in return. Don't miss the opposite, though, is also true. Don't forget what Peter said to Ananias. He asked him how Satan, how could Satan have filled your heart? Because while true service is spirit-driven, true service that we offer to Christ without worry of of, of reputation or or reward or what people are going to say about us, that is spirit-driven. But watch, watch what Peter says. He asks Peter, he asks Ananias about the Satan filling him up. So the opposite is also true. While true service is spirit-driven, self-righteous, self-centered, self-promoting acts are satanically Driven. See, there's this constant battle inside of us with the enemy. And man, it wears me down. Doesn't it wear you down? But that is our battle until heaven. Until we reach heaven and Christ is sufficient to give us strength to win over the temptation that Satan will bring our way. He was tempting Ananias and Sapphira and they allowed him to influenced them, and they went his direction. They went with his plan for them instead of Christ's plan for them. But they couldn't blame Satan because Peter asks Ananias, what made you think of doing such a thing? He says, Satan filled your heart, but what made you think of doing such a thing? In other words, Ananias, you're the one responsible. See, Christ gives us the power to say no to sin we can overcome. And inward integrity is a really big deal to Jesus. Who we say we are on the outside is who we should be on the inside. We should pursue Christ out of a heart that says, I want to serve God. I want to live my life righteously. It doesn't matter if I do good things. It doesn't matter if I go to church or give offerings or whatever or serve. If my heart doesn't want to please my Savior, if I don't do it out of a sincere heart that says, God, whatever you want in my life, wherever you want to take me, God, I'm yours. And then he drives our ministries. We have already said it wasn't enough. It wasn't even that, that much money that Ananias and Sapphira kept back for themselves. They only kept back a little bit but apparently their integrity could be bought for a pretty low price. And I'm scared that lots of us sell our integrity for low prices. Jesus says, you'll get no reward in heaven. That is the reward we should be looking for. But we trade those rewards in heaven for little things here on earth, like looking good to others, or a little bit of money, or getting a laugh so we make a story bigger than it really was, or, or, I don't know, we trade our integrity for all kinds of things that don't really matter instead of living for that reward in heaven that we will get one day that comes from a sincere heart that wants to please God. Jesus has little time for hypocrites. The character of God demands integrity from every believer. And finally, here's the third thing we learn about God. The character of God demands that sin is punished. Because God is holy, because God is righteous and pure and perfect, he cannot let sin go. And that's not what he does when he forgives us. Christ paid the price for our sins. Jesus didn't, God didn't just say, I'll, I'll let it go. In, in essence, God, Jesus didn't die for us. He died for his father. He died to, to satisfy his father's justice, the payment for sin. And, and so he, he offers it to us He can't, he doesn't just wink at sin. He doesn't just say, ah, that's okay. No, Jesus paid a high price for our sin. God's character demands that sin is punished and sin that is unconfessed, sin that I continue to deliberately go towards is not under the covering of Jesus. He paid for it, but we are inviting God's discipline on our lives when we don't apply his forgiveness to us. We are inviting his divine discipline. Ananias and Sapphira felt it. Others felt it. You look at the New Testament, write down this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 30 to 32. The church is warned, 1 Corinthians 11, 30 to 32. The church is warned when they come to communion, they better make sure their heart is right. Paul says, that is why some of you are hurt and some of you have even fallen asleep. In other words, some of you have even died because you've not had a right heart. See, God in his graciousness and in his love takes believers to heaven if they're not going to live for him on earth. The most loving and compassionate thing for him to do is just to take you right to heaven because Jesus loves his church. He loves his bride. And if we're not going to have integrity and if we're going to continue down a path of sin that shames the name of Jesus, he'll just say, Come on, come up to heaven. It's better for you to be up here. 1 John 5.16 is another one to look at that talks about sin that leads to death. 1 John 5, 16. You know what? No doubt at this time in Acts, it says in verse 11, which is really the summary verse, it sums up the passage. This was the point of it. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You can be sure there were lots of people who were looking at themselves, who were saying, do I have sin in my life? Am I walking away from God? Is there unconfessed sin in my heart? And that was the point. That was the point of what happened was so that the church would know that God demands that sin is punished. It's an important deal. It's a big deal. God cares so much about his bride, his church, that he will protect her. Are you protecting the integrity of his church? Or are you damaging his bride with unconfessed sin? Because until we get serious about our sin, we have not confessed Confession is more than I'm sorry. You've heard us teach on this before. But the word confession literally means going 180 degrees the other direction. It's not just saying I'm sorry and then doing it again. I'm sorry. God, I know you're going to keep forgiving me because that's who you are in your character. No, he will pull you and take you to heaven is what he will do. If I continue just to keep going down this path of sin, because he is loving and gracious, he takes me to heaven. It is when I confess, when I say, God, I am sorry, and I'm turning this way. I'm walking away from my sin. And here's step one, two, and three, and four. These are the things that I'm changing in my life, so I don't keep going that direction. That is confession. And when we confess our sins, the Bible says Jesus is faithful to forgive us. To cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness. His grace is there for us to be had, church. His forgiveness was there for Ananias and Sapphira to be had if they would have just said to their accountability partners, You can't believe what I just thought about doing. I need to, I need to tell you because I'm tempted to da 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 and tell them. It's not that we're perfect, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. It's that we're just not going to walk around and sort of wave our fist in God's face and say, yeah, I'm going, to, I'm going to heaven, so what are you going to do to me? And continue a life of sin. Let's close with one passage. We've got to wrap up. Hebrews is a scary passage. Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 31. In Hebrews 10, Hebrews is all about how Christ's sacrifice satisfied God and satisfied our payment for sin. Talks about the blood of Christ and what it did for us. Christ's sacrifice once for all is all there in Hebrews chapter 10. But then he comes to the end of that passage where he talks about the power of Christ's sacrifice. And here's what he says in verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the, the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as, unholy, as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that's sanctifying them and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? And that is what we do if we walk in sin as believers and we say, God, what are you going to do to me? I'm going to live my life the way I want to. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what the church teaches. I'm going to do what I want to do. What are you going to do? We are trampling on the blood of Jesus Christ who was sacrificed for us. We are insulting his Holy Spirit. And verse 30 says, for we know him who said, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And look at verse 31. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Church, God is to be feared. If you are walking in sin knowingly, walking away from Christ's sacrifice for you on the cross, not applying his forgiveness to your life, you are inviting the divine discipline of the Lord. You are testing his patience. You are testing his patience. And that is a scary thing to do. I don't stand here today in judgment of you, I stand here today and fear myself because I know that I walk away from God at times in my life, in my heart. But I'm saying, church, when we read passages like this, we just can't gloss over the story of of Ananias and Sapphira and all these other passages and, and ones like this in Hebrews. God loves his church and he will present to his son, Jesus. Revelation tells us a pure and a spotless bride and he will, is purifying us and making us spotless. And he did the work for us. All we have to do is accept his forgiveness. We're not gonna be perfect on our own. You're not gonna change your life. But when you turn to him and you say, I, I'm abandoning my ways. I'm abandoning my desires and whatever I've wanted for my life. Christ, you are in charge. Every single piece of my heart, every single piece of my being, not just on Sundays, all week long, the way I am at work, the way I am at home, the way I am wherever I am, even when I'm by myself, Christ, I am yours. Then God has grace for you and he offers you forgiveness and he offers to you a second chance to live your life for him. Would you turn and confess to him? As we close today, would you bow your heads? As great fear seized that church in Jerusalem, there were many that were examining themselves and examining their hearts And it would only be more than appropriate for us to do the same today. And as you listen to this song, as it closes, would you examine your heart's church? Would you pray and confess sin that maybe you've let go in your own life? Maybe you've walked away from God or maybe there's a point in your life that you know he wants and you keep on shaking your fist at him in that area of your life. Would you turn every part of you to him You can do that in your seat. You can sing along. You can listen. You can come forward and kneel. But would you repent and would you confess and get your heart where God wants it to be?